0: All right. So um, what we have in the Bible is what the Bible is is um, they're glasses. The Bible is a pair of glasses that you put in, put on, which changes your perspective on things. And things that you deemed unimportant, you put the glasses on, uh, you suddenly realise is incredibly important. And things which you used to think are important, you put the Bible's glasses on you and. You realise they're not so important. The Bible actually changes the way we view things. And today, what I'd like to get uh, today, what I'd like to do is to help you see the church differently. I want you to see church afresh. I'd love for you to see the true beauty and glory of uh, what God has done in bringing you together with others, so that we're assembled in Jesus' name. This Sunday afternoon, and the reason we need to feel afresh just how wonderful uh, this thing called church is is because we're living in a post-church world where it's very easy to be cynical about the church, and often for good reason. You know, we sometimes there's good reasons to be cynical. We look around and there's leadership scandals, there's abuse financial mismanagement, ego-driven leadership in churches. And even if you've not been a part of a church where those things are a big problem, all of us surely, probably, have had an experience where, which has cast shade on, on this thing we call church. And it can make you jaded with the church. Now, last year, I went to a conference on the Central Coast called Reach Australia. It was a conference for church pastors and leaders Our whole staff team went away, and I went there with my wife. And I I rocked up quite tired, to be honest. Um, uh, It had been a busy couple of years at church here. I'd led through a pandemic. Then we'd renovated the church buildings and done all of that. Uh, We had a whole new staff team start with us, and that was a massive transition. And so I was feeling tired, but a couple of things happened in those years preceding, which also were impacting me. So, I have a friend during the same years, a Christian friend of mine who was a pastor. He planted a church a little bit after we planted Vine Church. Uh, he ended up having an affair with a woman in his church. And he stepped down from ministry, he repented, but it was a difficult time for him. And Liz and I, we, you know, we supported him through all of that. But then one day he did something which again broke our trust and was of such significance that Liz and I were the ones that had to go into the police station and report it. And this was a guy we'd been doing ministry with since we were very young. And this was a guy I thought I'd be leading in church with, uh, that we'd be peers in ministry together till we're 80 and 90. And it shocked us. Really shocked us, and it made Liz and I cautious about you know, who can we actually trust? Uh, what leaders do we actually trust? Around about the same time, I had another friend that similarly I grew up in ministry together. He planted a church not long after us, and um, he, during those years, was growing exhausted and he partly burnt out as a pastor and he resigned from his role at his church. And watching from the sidelines, I couldn't help but feel that they didn't do a very good job of looking after him. And they didn't do a very good job of honouring him when he finished up. And it made me question, does my church take me for granted? Now, I don't think you do take me for granted, right? You are very generous and supportive. You guys gave me a fly fishing trip just before Christmas. Thank you so much for that, right? So I'm not feeling unsupported. This isn't a little dig at you guys at all. I'm just sharing with you what goes through your head as a pastor sometimes, not always rational, but it's what I was feeling. And so I end up going to this conference for church pastors, and I'm tired, exhausted, a little bit jaded with the church, uh, a little bit cynical. And there I am, and I rock up, and Rory Shiner is the preacher, and he preaches three sermons on the church. And they so encouraged me. They refreshed my heart, they lifted my eyes, and they helped me see just how precious the church is and how there's nothing else I'd rather be doing than leading a church despite the challenges. And so today I want to share with you on Vision Sunday some of the things that he said, some of the things that I've been reflecting on as well, to help you see with fresh eyes what God sees when he looks at our church and um, and so I'm going to talk about five things. Really, yeah, five things. This is going to be a long one, Vine Church. <laughs> it's Vision Sunday. No, I, I don't have time to do the fifth point. Liv, shaking her head. You don't have time, right? It would go for an hour if we did did that. Uh, but this is going to be slightly longer than normal. But we're going to look at these four things. What's God's project in the world? What is the church? Um, what's the church? Why is it significant? And what challenges do we face as we do this thing called church? I'd love to talk about what we're actually doing when we gather, but we don't have time for that. So we're going to look at these four things, starting with what is God's project for the church? So what's God up to in the world? What is his mission? If you've got a Bible, open up to Colossians 1 or look to the screen because I've printed it there for you as well. But this is what we read in Colossians 1. We're going to be dipping in and out of the book of Colossians to work out what it means to be church. Here's what we read: the Sun is the invisible The Sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, notice what we're being told there. We're being told that everything you've ever seen, touched, talked to, anywhere you've been in the world, it's been made by Jesus, through Jesus. And for Jesus, which means everything in the universe owes its very existence, its meaning, its purpose, its ongoing being to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, the reality is not everyone or everything acts that way as it's owned, made for Jesus Christ, and the result is we've been alienated from God. So verse 21, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So the Apostle Paul, he's writing to this church in Colossians, he's saying, hey, before you became a Christian, this is who you were. You were far from God, separate from God, alienated from God, and you had made God your enemy. Now, that's... Uh, when I was a younger Christian, it's hard to conceive of me being God's enemy, alienated before I became a Christian. Like, I was just doing my life, you know, like, what's the big deal? But here's the big deal. I'll give you an illustration to help you appreciate this. Uh, imagine you don't have a car. There's a car you've always liked. You don't have one. You catch the bus everywhere or public transport. There's a car you would love. One day you get on a bus, you head down to Bronte Beach for a swim, and you get off the bus, you're down there at Bronte Beach, and across the road is the car that you've always wanted. And it just so happens the doors open, and there's no one in the car, and you're like, well, this is a sign, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you go to the car, you look at it, and the keys are in the ignition and it's turned on. You're, like, you're looking around, no one's in there, no one's coming for it. Like, this car is, it's for me. So you jump in and you drive it off. You have a great old week, right? You get home and a friend of yours walking past as you get out of this car and they're like, what happened? You're like, oh, you would never believe it. Found this car, it brought And so they're like, you know, it's someone else's. They're like, nah, it was, door was open, keys in the ignition, it was just waiting for me. And they're like, you idiot, and they walk on their way. Anyway, you, you drive this car around for a week, and the next weekend, you go down to Woolies, do the groceries, get back in the car, and someone comes and runs up to you saying, hey, you're in my car, get out of it. And you're like, it's not your car, it's my car, and you drive away. All right, so there's the illustration. Now, here is the point, here's the question, What in that moment is your relationship like to the owner of the car? It's a little bit hostile, right? The moment they said, that's mine, and you said, no, it's mine, the moment that happens, uh, the hostility emerges, and you become an enemy of the owner. Your relationships change. Now, here's the thing. You're still a decent person. Like, you work hard in your job, you're a good friend to your friends, you now have a car to drive them around, right? So you're a great friend. You still recycle soft plastic. You're a decent person, right? But here's the thing, you are you're an enemy of the owner. this makes sense? And so here's the point, we're born into this world, and we wake up in this world, and it's as though the, the doors open, the keys are in the ignition, and we jump in and we drive off. And we don't stop to think about where it comes from, and we don't stop to think about whose world this is. We think, no, my life's my own, it's mine. And we don't realize that, no, we were made by Jesus and for Jesus. And God sends his messengers into the world, right, saying, hey, it's my world. I've seen you in the car park with my world. Come back to me. I want you to recognize who you are and who you belong to two. And so we need someone to come and make peace. We're alienated from God. We've said this is ours and it isn't ours, it's his. And that is the great project that God is in the business of doing in our world. He's making peace with people who formerly thought their life was their own when actually they were made for and by Jesus Christ. So look at verse 19, it says... God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in the Son and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether it's things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. So what's God's mission in the world? It's to reconcile things that have been alienated from Him. And that's what Jesus is in the business of doing. And notice He takes the first step. It's remarkable because usually in human relationships, peace only comes when, you know, when we feel like they've groveled enough, they've suffered enough, they've been punished enough, and then we'll let them back in our life. But God switches it. Like we're the wrong, we wrong him, and yet what does it cost him to bring us back to himself? The blood of his dear son, Jesus, that makes atonement and pays for our forgiveness. Now, that is wonderful, isn't it? That's what God's in the business of doing. But notice, he's not just reconciling individuals. Christianity is not this individualistic affair. Notice what he's reconciling. His goal is to reconcile to himself all things. And all things mean all things. And the reason all things need to get reconciled is because we're living in a world that is an absolute mess. Uh, The human sin hasn't just broken us, it's broken the environment, it's broken everything around us so that this world isn't the way God meant it to be, and it needs to be put back together. It's a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, imagine you go on a road trip with some friends and you end up in an Airbnb and, and you wake up in the morning and someone's tipped out a jigsaw puzzle on the coffee table and, and you can't make sense of anything. It's just like 5,000 pieces, something like that. And you look for the box, and you can find the box the puzzle pieces sit in, but there's no lid, no photograph. So you can't make sense of what all these pieces are meant to be. You know, is this a tree or a house or a, a person's eye? I have no idea. You don't know whether the pieces are upside down or back to front. And that's what it feels like being in this world that's what it feels like to be in this world that's what being a human every you know every so often it's as though we can make out some kind of meaning in our world that things surely they hold together but in but the bible is saying that all things do hold together in and through the son and all things are being brought back together through him so that so that there's meaning and coherence to our lives. Now, our vine tree, that's what we're on about, right? We are on about helping people reconnect to the God who made them and loves them. We were made by Jesus and for Him, and people are alienated from God. He loves people. He died so that we could be forgiven and reconciled, and, uh, and life starts to cohere... And makes sense when we come back to him. And that's, that's what fires us up as a church. So as we think about vision, that's our vision, right? It's God's vision. That's what he's doing in the world. This is his project. Now, if that is God's project to reconcile all things, starting with individuals, then what is, what is church? Uh, what's the purpose of Church. Now, before we can ask what's the purpose of church, have got to start with what is church. And the word church is just a very simple word. It's not a religious word at all. The word church in Greek simply means a meeting, an assembly, a gathering, or a mob of people. So anywhere you find a, a human beings grouped, meeting, in flesh, that's a church, Okay? So you could call the church at the Beresford right now, which they do call it, Sunday Church, right? This is Beresford. Anyway, they, they call that Sunday Church over there. And it's legitimate because church simply means meeting or mob or gathering or assembly. So that's what the word means. And um, and in the book of Colossians, the word church is used uh, four times. We're going to look at three of the instances. And I want to help you see what it what this actually means. So the first use is in Colossians 4, verse 16. This is what it says. Paul says, hey, after this letter, which I've written to you guys in Colossae, has been read to you, see that it's also read in the church of the Laodiceans, the the meeting, the gathering, the mob of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter uh, from Laodicea. So Paul's written two letters, one to a church in Colossae, One to a church in Laodicea and he's like, tell you what, those letters bloody brilliant. You (laughs) you guys should play swapsies with these letters. Make sure nothing gets me. That's what he's saying to them. And he calls that group of Christians, the the meeting place of Christians in Laodicea who get together to read the letter the apostle sent them. He calls that a church. So that's what we'd call a local church. But a verse earlier, we meet a different kind of church. So, verse 15 of chapter 4 give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So, there's a group of Christians that hang out at Nympha's house to study the Bible and pray to the Lord and serve one another, love one another. And uh, we would call a group that meets in a house on a Tuesday night, we would call that a a community group, but Paul calls that a, a church. Now, that's interesting. Uh, that, Paul's word for it is church, not just any hangout of Christians, but it's when Christians get together, united by the name of Jesus, centered on him and in his word to love and serve one another. So that's the second use of the word church in Colossians. The third use is a little bit different. And that's in chapter one. And this is what we read there. Paul says, And Christ is the head of the body, the church. Now, this sounds like a little bit different. Doesn't sound like he's describing a meeting, does it? Sounds like he's describing some Frankenstein figure with the head of Jesus and the body of all of these Christians. But uh, here's, you know, it sounds different from a house church or a Community group or a local church, something bigger seems to be going on here. Now, traditionally, I tell you the traditional way Christians have understood this we've understood this to mean um, he's describing here uh, Christians everywhere. So, you, you know, it, he, church is the collective noun for a group of Christians. So, you know, what is the collective noun of a goose, a group of goose? Is this right? I'm so bad at grammar. <laughs> Looking at Liv, she's very intelligent. I go to her for all of my grammar needs. But a group of goose is called a, a gaggle, is it? A gaggle, of geese. a gaggle of geese. Thank you. Okay. So we don't call it a gaggle of Christians. We, we call it a church, right? And so maybe that's what Paul's talking about here. You know, the, the body of Christ is the worldwide number of Christians in the world. So traditionally, that's how we've understood this. But I want to suggest, I don't think that's the way this word is used in the New Testament. Because if Paul was doing that, he'd be departing from what the word means. Like if I was to name all, you know, a group of Christians that aren't meeting right now, you know, the group of Christians in the world right now. And if I, it'd be weird for me to call the meeting when they're not actually meeting. Does that make sense? Ecclesia simply means meeting. It doesn't just refer to religious meetings, it refers to secular meetings. And so um, I don't think that's, I don't think he has in mind that, uh, that I still think he's thinking about a meeting a gathering, an assembly. Uh, But what he's referring to here is the church as it's assembled around Jesus in heaven. Now, why might we think that? Well, because Paul thinks of Christians in terms of living in two places at once. So if you're a Christian and I were to ask you, where are you right now? You'd say, Well, I'm in uh, in a church in Surrey Hills right now, uh, but you're also somewhere else. So, Colossians 3 says this Since then you were raised with Christ, set your heart on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So, where are you right now? You are raised with Christ. And where is Christ right now? He's seated. At the right hand of God the Father. So where are you right now? You're with Him in heaven, gathered around the throne. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, You have been raised with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly realms. So if you're a Christian, you just happen to be this evening in two places, two churches at the same time. You're in the church of Surrey Hills this meeting of Christians in Surrey Hills around the Word of God. And you're also in the heavenly assembly, the heavenly church that's present to God. Now, this is worth reflecting on deeply. This is so important because the most important thing about you, the truest thing about you, the most significant thing about you is something no one can see. Your life is hid with Christ in God and you've been raised with him, you are with him right now, spiritually, in heaven. You're not waiting to come to God, you've come to God. You're in the presence of God. There's a seat with your name on it in heaven, not waiting for you to show up, you're there already. The center of who you are is you are with Christ. And so let me uh, pull this together. What's happening in Laodicea, what's happening in Nympha's house on a Tuesday night, what's happening uh, when he says we're the body of Christ, all of this is connected to what's happening in heaven. Because what's happening at Nympha's house or your place on a Tuesday night, Wednesday night for community group, and what's happening in Laodicea on a Sunday morning and in Surrey Hills on a Sunday afternoon, all of this is a tangible expression of of what is already happening before the throne of God in heaven. And so here's what church is. As Christians gather in the name of Jesus on earth, we are manifesting on earth here what is true in heaven, that we are in fact already gathered around the throne of God. And if that's true, every time we gather, in whatever configuration we gather, we are... Telling the world, declaring to the world what is happening in heaven by the way we get together on earth. Now that is huge. This is really huge. And it means that what we do here is of such significance. Because if we act in a way in church, which is different to the way things go on in the heavenly gathering, how dare we? Right? So if there's any racism in the church and we exclude an ethnic group or we show favoritism to one ethnicity and not another, how dare we? Because in the heavenly gathering, every tribe, language, and people is assembled there. And that's why racism has no place in church whatsoever. It's why favoritism has no place. So if you're rich, you're poor, doesn't matter what social strata you come from, you there's no kind of hierarchies in church life because there's no hierarchy in heaven. We are all gathered around the throne of God. and That's why it matters so much that we revere the words of Christ here because in heaven he's seated on a throne and we bow before him. You see what's happening here? It's why our love for one another is so important. Because the person next to you is gathered to Jesus in heaven and we all are already assembled around Jesus. Who am I to hold on to bitterness towards my brother or sister in Christ when Christ has gathered them to his throne? You see how significant this is? And so that brings me to my uh, third point. I mean, that's what the church is. It's a gathering. But the third point is why is it, Why not what? Why is church so significant? And um, to do that, I want you to think about this word mystery. It's picked up in this in our passage in Colossians, and you notice I've I've, uh, italicised it: the church, the mystery, the mystery. It's a complicated couple of sentences in Colossians. I think when Paul writes about the similar thing in Ephesians, he makes a lot more sense. So, I'm going to flick to Ephesians right now. He's a lot clearer. But here's um, what Paul's saying Paul's saying that the church uh, was always a mystery in the Old Testament. So, notice the language of mystery. Now, when you read mystery in the New Testament, don't think woo woo, uh, (laughs) don't think mysterious, don't think something strange. It's, It's simply the word for something that was a secret and uh, you're waiting for the answer to the secret. So it's in the New Testament, it's a secret that's been revealed. Hold that. This is what we read in Ephesians. We read this mystery, so this secret that in the Old Testament, we're like, what's it talking about? Like, is this thing going to happen? This mystery is that through the gospel... The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. Paul says, Although I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me. Here was my job to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. So what is this mystery? What's the secret that was for ages hidden but has now been revealed? The secret is, you ready for it? The secret is that the Gentiles get to join the people of God with the Jews. I should have heard an hallelujah at that point (laughs) because you're a Gentile, right? And we just take this for granted. Of course I get to go to church. Of course I get to be part of the people of God. But for three-quarters of the Bible, the Old Testament, you didn't get to belong to the people of God. You were excluded. God had chosen the Jews. And throughout the Old Testament, we're like, do the Gentiles ever get in? And it's a mystery. It's a secret until the coming of Jesus when Jesus saves both Jew and Gentile. A Gentile is someone who isn't a Jew. My guess is 95% of us here are non-Jews, right? Right? And so, this is, this should, you should be so thankful for this. It's huge that God has gathered not just his ethnic people, the Jews, but the Gentiles who are pagans and idolaters, and he's included us in salvation. So, that's what the mystery is that God has gathered even the Gentiles. Now, get this, because this is what God is doing. He's demolished the dividing wall of hostility that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. They hated each other in the ancient world. I guess the modern example are the Jews and the Palestinians today feel that level of animosity, and that's what the Gentiles and the Jews were. And God's great miracle is that he saves the Jew and the Gentile by bringing them both to faith in Jesus, the Messiah. And by doing so, because he's reconciled them to God, now they are part of his body. And God's miracle is that he brings these former enemies together as family in the church. And that is an incredible miracle. It's absolutely wonderful. And notice God's intent in doing all of this. Ephesians is very clear on this. God's intent in doing all of this was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus. So God is proclaiming to the universe the evil powers, his victory uh, and his plan to bring all things together and he's like, God's putting the pieces of the jigsaw back together, and where does he start? He starts with the church. So that you're looking at this jigsaw puzzle box, and you kind of, all, they're all jumbled up, nothing makes sense. You go to bed, the next morning, somehow someone's put 10, 20, or 30 of the pieces back together. And suddenly you can kind of work out, oh, this is the skyline of Sydney City. And that's what God is doing. He's putting all things back together, reconciling it all together. And where does he start? He starts with the church. God has brought us together, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, hipster and dags, whatever it is. Those things don't matter because what matters is Christ is all and in all. Now, when that happens... God is boasting. Do you see that? God's intent was that now through the church, through this daggy and depressed group of Christians that the world despises and doesn't seem very significant, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So it's as though God's saying, hey, you see these group of people who used to not love each other at all, who, who used to be enemies. I've brought them together. They now bow before the knee before Jesus. They love one another. You see that? That is the greatest miracle I've done. I did that. I cancelled their sin and broke the power that keeps them apart. I reconciled me. I reconciled them to me and I've made them one family. You want to see how powerful I am, God's saying? Look at the church. Now that's... Not That's different to the way I think. Because if I'm ever talking to a non-Christian about God's power and beauty and glory, I'll be, oh, you know, ever stood at the Three Sisters in Blue Mountains and, how can there not be a God, right? You know, what are the glorious places in the world you've been to which showcase God's majesty? You know, Grand Canyon, Himalayas, certain beaches have been to, right? I got in trouble for talking about beaches too much. Someone said, you always talk about beaches, Davey. Shut up about beaches. Uh, but uh, anyway, so imagine, whatever your thing. I went to Liv's Farm in the Yayak Valley. That place was spectacular. It was, a, it, was, it was, you know, you see God's handiwork in that, right? But where is God's greatest miracle in the world right now? What is God boasting about? Before the powers of evil? He's saying, This church, this is the thing he's most excited about. You see that? So when we gather together as Christians, this is a sign to the evil powers that the game's up, the show's over. Because you see, the powers and Satan and his minions, they love nothing more than a pile of jumbled up pieces. He loves mess. Because a mess testifies to the fact that God's not in charge. God's not ruling and reigning. God's kingdom's not manifest. Uh, and yet God is saying, no, 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 look what I've done in bringing people to my son and in the way they love one another as members of his body. It's absolutely incredible. You know, what we do in church, it's so precious uh, I, last week, someone asked me, you know, uh, what do we believe, the gifts of the Spirit? I say, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I think he meant, uh, do we believe miracles still happen on earth today? And I'm like, of course we do. We pray for that. We pray for people who are sick. Yep, all for it. But I'm like, at Vine Church, we are more amazed by another miracle God's doing. Because the most profound miracle that God is drawing attention to in the world today is this group of church, that he's gathered us to, to listen to the word of Jesus. Now, and when that happens, get this, he's, he's telling Satan, you've lost the power. He's boasting to the powers and principalities. Now, let's apply this for a second, because here's the thing, if that's all happening, this is God's plan and purpose, why is it sometimes so hard to do church? You know, I feel like sometimes it's like there are just things against us getting to church. Uh, and for you, I don't know, maybe it is public transport. You don't have a car. You wish there was a car. <laughs> you could, a door was, you know, maybe, you know, maybe finding a park in Surrey Hills is hard. You know, what is it for community groups? You know, sometimes there are just things which, you know, everyone posts on WhatsApp that they can't meet for community group this week and it ends up being just you and the awkward guy or girl in your group that week. It's so awkward, right? You know, sometimes you've prepared the study for community group and yet it's hijacked and torpedoed by that person who has a bee in their bonnet and just wants to discuss this same thing. And everyone else sides up with them and you're like, come on, I've prepared this study You know, sometimes the boss asks you to stay back late at work, which gets in the way. You know, uh, as a parent, getting my kids out of bed into clothes and to car on a Sunday morning, it's almost impossible, let alone not arguing with my wife while that's happening, right? There are so many things. Sometimes feels like the world is against me getting to church, and here's the thing, it shouldn't surprise us because of course Satan and the forces of evil are invested in us not coming together. Because every time we do come together, we're manifesting the reality that's happening in heaven as we gather here on earth. Does that make sense? God is bringing back everything together and he's starting together with us. The way we love one another, the way we worship Jesus and it might, therefore, not be a coincidence that sometimes you find it hard to get here. Because what we're doing by meeting, it, it's of spiritual nature, and Satan's against it. Okay, so that's the third thing. That's why it's so significant. Thirdly, and fourthly, and finally, is well, what are the challenges that we will face? And I've already touched on them. I want to talk about two challenges, and this is application. So... um. The first challenge is this, that it is possible to live unaware of just how precious church is. Now, this week, I um, heard a story about the Black Stone of Queensland. Anyone heard of this stone before? So apparently in the early 20th century, there was a kid out playing in the bush, and he discovered this stone just lying in the bush somewhere somewhere. And uh, he brought it home, showed his dad, and dad said, oh, that's a nice, smooth piece of stone. And they ended up using it as a doorstop in their house. And um, anyway, a couple of years later, I don't know how much longer after, they discovered that this wasn't just a stone. This was a sapphire, the largest sapphire ever discovered in the world up until that moment. was named the Black Stone of Queensland, and it was worth, anyone want to take a guess? $100 $100 million, and they had been using it as a doorstop, getting banged about, kicked about. Anyone know who this woman is in the photo? No one. Sure. Do you even know who Sher sure is these days? You guys are too young, right? Anyway, that's sure with the Blackstone of Norway on it, uh, of, uh, of Queensland on it. Now, here's my point. If they knew how valuable that, Rock was, don't you think they would have changed their attitude toward it? Now, here's the question. How valuable is the church? Jesus bled and died to make this happen. He calls it his bride. He watches on and he waits for this to happen each week. He waits for us to put aside our distractions and gather around his word and to love one another as fellow members of his body. And when we do that, he says to the universe, look at my genius, look at my power, look at what I have done in bringing this group together. What we have in church is precious beyond imagining. uh, Jesus bled and died to make this possible, and therefore it matters more than anything you do in the week. This matters protecting the health of this church, caring about the health of your church, your community. It matters more than anything else because this is at the very center of God's purposes for the world. You know, during long service leave in December and January, our family went and uh, were traveling a whole bunch of places. We ended up at a whole bunch of different churches. And some of them were like just the salt of the earth, country, daggy churches, right? And I had my kids with us. And my kids have grown up in trendy Surrey Hills church, right? (laughs) And they're like, oh, this stupid church. The food sucks here. And they're like, food's so good at Surrey Hills. And I'm like, and you know, they came away, oh, I hate that church. So boring, right? Anyway, we came away and I sat them down and said, don't you ever say that. Because it is an absolute miracle. I mean, you look at Byron, we're up in Byron Bay. No one's going to church. Everyone's living for themselves, their wealth, their comfort. I'm like, here are a group of people who realize what is real reality. And they come to sing Jesus' praises. Never get bored of that, kids. Yeah, singing wasn't, was not a little bit awkward. Yeah, the sermon was a little bit boring. But they would think that if they were sitting in one of my sermons as well, right? But um <laughs> But I'm like, you see how the people loved each other there? Yeah, you know, we went to one of those churches where they wouldn't let you go; right? they just keep love bombing you over. And it's remarkable. I'm like, we're complete strangers, and look at how they treat us. I say, don't ever take that for granted, kids. Yeah, they have it too good in our church, uh, I think. And so that's the first thing. It is possible for you to live unaware of how precious this is. And then the second thing is, and yet it's still hard to gather, and therefore I want to encourage you in that, because notice in Ephesians, um, uh, what in in Colossians, sorry, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul assumes it is going to be hard to gather. Notice what he says. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that isn't a a a, a statement to you as an individual, like, uh, it's not just me who's chosen holy and dear. He's talking to the group. God's giving us a bear hug in this moment, right? He's saying, this gathering, you are chosen, dearly loved by God, and here's what you need to do. You need to clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all of these put on love, which binds them all together in perfect humility. Now, what does the Apostle Paul assume church is going to be like if these are the things he's saying you're gonna need to put on? He's not an idealist, he's not an idealist, is he? It's almost he's saying to us today, God's making us a promise, hey, I promise that if you lean into this thing called church, there's going to be plenty of opportunities for you to forgive someone. And it's going to be a place where you're required to extend forgiveness to someone who needs your forgiveness. And it's probably going to be a place where you're going to need to be forgiven. That's what church is. Church is going to be a place where, At some point in the next 12 months, you're probably going to need to say to someone, I'm sorry, and it'll be an opportunity for them to forgive you. It's going to be a place where your patience is tested, that your leader, your pastor, someone in your small group or ministry team is going to irritate you, and it's going to be unreliable And you are going to be required to be patient with them. That's what it looks like in God's church. Very realistic. And so over a 12-month period in Jesus' church that meets in Surrey Hills, you're going to need to grow in these things. And if you haven't experienced in a 12-month period at church these things, then the problem is probably that you haven't leaned in enough. See, if you're not part of a community where you need to give and receive love and you, where you need to forgive and be forgiven, where your patience is tested, if you haven't been a part of a church where that's happened, it's probably be because you're standing aloof from the community. And my encouragement to you this year is you need to lean in. Because God has gathered you, not just to himself, you belong to his body and you are a member of it. You belong to the other people in this room. And so it will be hard. And they're the challenges we're going to face. So that's Vision Sunday. What's God's project in the world? He's reconciling all things to himself and he starts with former enemies in the church, Jew and Gentile. And as He assembles us and gathers us to His Son, He seats us in heaven. That's the church. It's gathered right now. And every time we get together as church, we are manifesting on earth what is true in heaven. And therefore, the things we do, the priorities have ought to reflect the priorities of heaven. But as we do that, it's going to be hard. And it's going to require compassion, forgiveness, patience, kindness, humility. But as we do that, God is declaring to the universe, here is my greatest miracle. The world despises it. The world doesn't think anything of this. But God says, this is it. This is my greatest miracle. And so would you treasure it? And would you deem it precious this year? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great and glorious picture of what you're doing in the world we don't maybe we've taken for granted the churches that we've come from, the churches we've visited, and maybe even this church that we are a part of. Lift our eyes, change our hearts, give us a fresh vision for for, for why this is so important. And we ask that you might so work among us that we work for the growth and health of this your body. And that we might commit to regularly gathering together to declare on earth what is true in heaven. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.